Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.scbts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Though his baptism is unique, I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 13 through 17. We come to Article 7 tonight on uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and what we're going to do is break it into two parts because both ordinances are so crucial, though they are brought together in Article 7 in the Baptist faith and message. But Jesus was not baptized for the same reasons that you and I are baptized. He was baptized in a unique kind of a way as an inauguration of his ministry and as an identification of himself with sinful men and women like you and like me. But still, there is a pattern here for us to learn from. And so in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through verse 17, Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jonathan Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God, note the Trinitarian uh, presence at his baptism. Here's the Son seeing now the Spirit descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice, verse 17, the voice of the Father, came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus establishes the beginning of his ministry by going to John and seeking baptism from him, fulfilling righteousness, identifying himself with sinful persons. Now, <clears throat> look at page one then and note the article on baptism and the Lord's Supper. Christian baptism is the immersion. I would underline that word if I'm a note taker. An immersion or the immersion of a believer. I would mark that word as well. It is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin. The burial of the old life and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. That's a single sentence with a mouthful of theology in it. It is a testimony then to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead and being a church ordinance. Now, I would mark that as well, being a church ordinance. It is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. And then we will look at the Lord's Supper after the first of the year, but we will read it here. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. I think you would be struck by the 
a slim number, the few number of scriptures that you find dedicated to Article 7, both on baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I have cited for you as key texts, the more crucial ones of which this is almost all of them. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, of course, the great commission given by our Lord as he was preparing to ascend back into heaven. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You can see that the Baptist faith and message picked up that language directly. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Acts 2, 41 through 42, the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Romans 6, 3 through 5, one of the great doctrinal uh, discussions of baptism. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Language that you often hear when the act of baptism takes place as a pastor lowers a, uh, a, a person under the water, brings them up, and challenges them to walk in newness of life. Top of the next page, for if we have been united to him, uh, united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then Colossians 2.12, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, if you have a pen or if you don't, take one out for just a moment. And before I begin to walk you through the article on baptism, at the bottom of the page, let me ask you to write these phrases. Write member, and then I'm going to give you a word. Write mode, M-O-D-E, I'm going to give you a word. Write meaning, and I'll give you a phrase. And then write administrator, and I'll make a comment about that as well. But we believe that baptism, first of all, requires the right member. And beside that, write the word believer. A right member for baptism is a believer. Secondly, right mode, M-O-D-E. And beside that phrase, write the word immersion. Because we believe that biblical baptism is baptism of a believer by immersion. So, right member, a believer. Right mode, immersion. Thirdly, Right meaning. Right meaning. And by the words or the phrase right meaning, you can write the words symbolic. You can add the word memorial. And you can add the phrase identification with Christ. So right meaning, symbolic, memorial, identification with Christ. All right? Almost all Baptists, in fact, I don't know an exception would agree that biblical baptism requires a right member, a believer, a right mode, immersion, right meaning, symbolic identification with Christ. But there are some also who believe that there is a fourth requirement, and that is the phrase right administrator, 
right administrator. And they would be some of them that the right administrator must be the local church. But there are others that would even say the right administrator must be the local church and it must be a local church. You've heard this phrase before if you've been a Baptist for very long. A local church of like faith and there's one more word, practice, like faith and practice. In other words, uh, there are some Baptist churches. And remember, each Baptist church is autonomous. Uh, each Baptist church decides for itself its doctrinal parameters. There are some churches that would not admit someone into their church by transfer of letter or by statement if they had been baptized as a believer uh, by immersion identification with Christ, but it was deemed that the church did not have like faith and practice. For example, the issue might be eternal security. And if you have kept up in recent years with some of the discussions that have gone on with our International Mission Board, then you would know that at least uh, for a time, and it's still somewhat ambivalent, if you were going to apply to be a missionary with the IMB, it was not enough that you had been baptized as a believer by immersion, identifying yourself with Christ. Your church must also, that baptized you, must also have affirmed the doctrine of eternal security. So if you've been baptized, say, in a Nazarene church, or say, an Assemblies of God church, or perhaps a Christian church, then your baptism was not deemed biblical enough sufficient enough, and therefore you would have to be rebaptized. Uh, this, by the way, is not theoretical with me. I have two daughter-in-laws on the mission field, both of whom were baptized in the same Christian church. One of them was required to be rebaptized. The other was not. You say, why? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that one out. Uh, needless to say, I'm not all that impressed with the ambiguity that took place there. I am impressed with my daughter-in-law, who did not feel that her baptism was illegitimate, but because she loves my son, her husband, and because she did not want that to be an impediment to the uh, uh, gospel going to the nations, she submitted herself again to baptism, while the person who was baptizing her was saying all along, I don't think I should be doing this. I don't think this is the right thing that we're being required to do. Nevertheless, so that Anna might be able to take the gospel to the nations, we're going to baptize her again. So everyone agrees, most everyone, right member, yes, right mode, yes, right meaning, yes, and some would add a fourth requirement, and that being the right administrator ever how. You define the right administrator. All right. Now, with all that out there, let's begin to walk through the article. And again, I think you'll find the explanation that follows to be insightful and theologically helpful. Baptism. Our name Baptist expresses one of the most unique tenets of our identity, practice and theology. And that is no understatement. Our name, however, does not reflect a designation our ancestors consciously chose to describe themselves. Opponents actually chose our name for us. In other words, those who are called Baptists 
initially did not call themselves Baptists. They were called Baptists by their accusers, by their detractors, because almost all of those that were opposing them had been baptized as infants. And now you've got this group coming along basically saying that baptism was illegitimate. You can't baptize infants because the Bible does not recognize any such thing. And therefore, they were, well, these are the folks that, that baptized. In fact, uh, the Anabaptists, the word Anna means again. So the Anabaptists were those who required a second baptism, uh, decrying the illegitimacy of infant baptism. And by the way, sometimes their opponents took care of them with what could be called the Anna-Anabaptism. And they drowned them. They said, you like water so much? Great. We'll give you all that you want. And they would be arrested. They would be charged with various crimes, usually treason. And then they would be baptized to death. They would be drowned. So opponents actually chose our name for us. Since other Christian groups identified our spiritual ancestors with a name that describes our unique belief regarding the Christian initiation rite, it is incumbent upon us as Baptists to understand the richness of this biblical practice. And so we'll ask a series of questions to get at that. All right. First, top of page three. What is the difference between an ordinance and a sacrament? The BFNM 2000 identifies baptism as a, quote, church ordinance, close quote. Other church groups, such as Catholics and Presbyterians, prefer the term sacrament. A sacrament is a ritual act that functions as, here's the key now, functions as a means of grace, that's Catholicism, or a sign of grace, that's Presbyterianism. In other words, the Catholic Church actually believes that an infant is born again as an infant at their baptism. That's, in other words, it is a conveyance of grace wherein they receive saving salvation and saving grace through the act of baptism. I didn't mention them, but uh, for adults, the Church of Christ again, believes that baptism is essential to salvation. And so they see a saving significance to the act of going down in and under the water. Presbyterians do not go quite that far, but they do see baptism as a sign of grace or a sign of one coming into the covenant community. And, of course, Presbyterians also baptize infants, as do Roman Catholics, as do Episcopalians, as do Lutherans, as do Methodists, though they don't all do it for exactly the same reasons, but they all would fall under one of two categories. Either it is a means of gaining grace or it is a sign of grace. The term sacrament, I would argue, is not an inherently incorrect term. In fact, if you look up the word sacrament and the word ordinance in some dictionaries, they function as synonyms. That's how secular uh, dictionaries would look at those words. So the word is not inherently incorrect if one retains the original meaning of the term. A sacrament originally denoted an oath of allegiance undertaken by a new Roman army soldier to his superior commanding officer. Well, in that sense, baptism is a public oath of allegiance to Jesus Christ. And I think that would be a very fine way of understanding one component or aspect of baptism. 
Thus, Baptists, though, prefer the term ordinance to sacrament because of the danger found with the word sacrament and the misunderstanding that it can be a conveyance of salvation. Thus, an ordinance is an act ordained or commanded by Christ. In addition, Baptists affirm that the New Testament connects the ordinances to the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. If you look on the very last page, you will see at the bottom of that page, uh, well, you'll see a chart. But at the bottom of the page, you'll see something that says the number of sacraments or ordinances. And you'll note, for example, that the Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, penance, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, marriage, extreme unction for the time of your death, and the order of the priesthood. Protestant minimalists, which is us, we see two. And we don't call them sacraments. We call them ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. But there are some Protestants, though not uh, large in number, that would extend the number of uh, ordinances to three, four, or some would even say five. They would include baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the largest number that would give an additional ordinance would fall under the category of also including foot washing, then a few marriage and some prayers for the sick. You say, all right, why don't we then include, let's just take foot washing as a ordinance? Well, a couple of reasons. One, Jesus did not command us to continue doing it. Secondly, unlike baptism and the Lord's Supper, foot washing does not picture very well the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, I would argue that it doesn't picture that at all. And therefore, I think we are on good grounds in affirming that there are only, according to the New Testament, go back to page 3, that paragraph then, according to the New Testament, Christ established only two ordinances, baptism and uh, the Lord's Supper. Thus, the act of immersion portrays death and coming back up out of the water, resurrection. And the elements of the Lord's Supper portray the crucified body and the shed blood of Jesus. So both baptism and the Lord's Supper have an element symbolically of death in both of them. All right. Second, what is the meaning of the term baptized? It is the Greek word baptizo. Baptize is actually an anglicized form of the Greek word baptizo. The translators, it's very interesting here, this is a history lesson very quickly. The translators of the King James Version did not translate the Greek word. Because if you translate it, it means to immerse. In other words, if they had translated baptizo in an English uh, translation of the Bible, every time you see the word baptize, you would see the word immerse or immersion. All right? But there was a problem, as I'm going to explain it to you here very quickly. Again, the translators of the KJV did not translate the Greek word. Rather, the translators brought the word over into the English language. They transliterated or they anglicized it. In this practice, then, the translators follow the explicit instructions of King James, the head of the Anglican Church, i.e., the Church of England. According to F.W. Moulton's The History of the English Bible, King James drafted a series of instructions to the translators. Rule 3 stipulated, quote, The old ecclesiastical words are to be kept. These, the word church, should not be translated congregation or assembly. Translations such as congregation for church or, top of the next page, immerse for baptized, actually attacked the theology 
of the Church of England, the Episcopal Church. It attacked their theology, which, of course, when it comes to baptism, was not baptizing by immersion believers, but they were sprinkling infants. And so they did not want to translate it dip, plunge, or immerse, and so they just transliterated it into baptizo now becomes baptized. They basically created a brand new English word. But the Greek verb means to dip. It means to plunge. It means to immerse. Thus, the Baptist faith and message rightly defines baptism as the immersion of a believer in water. In fact, I have a book in my library on baptism that points out in extra biblical literature that Herod, the mean Herod, Herod the Great, actually took one of his sons, or two of his sons, excuse me, out into one of the kingly family pools, and he had them baptized to death. Uh, he did not sprinkle them. He did not pour water on their head. He had his thugs take his boys out and drown them. And actually, drowning is a good synonym for the word baptism. Okay? Next paragraph then. Immersion then. Symbolizes the meaning of baptism, death, burial, and resurrection in a way that sprinkling or pouring, <coughs> excuse me, cannot convey. And by the way, if you were to be in my systematic theology class and you were to have a fill in the blank question that said, what are the different modes of baptism practiced today by various denominations? There are three. Sprinkling. Pouring, where they usually take a pitcher and pour water over the head, or immersion. So, in addition to immersion, sprinkling is the most common. Pouring is also sometimes practiced as the act of baptism. But, the New Testament describes baptism as occurring in watery depths. John baptized at Enon because there was, quote, plenty of water there. John 3.23 at his baptism, Jesus went up from the water. Matthew 3.16. When Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, they both went down into the water. Acts 8.38. And so there are some Bible scholars that are very fair. Dr. Lanier can speak to this even better than I. That at least are honest in other denominations. In other denominations, he will say, well, granted, when you look at the word etymologically... And you look at how the word functioned in the ancient world. And you look at how the word is used in the New Testament. Yeah, we admit, immersion was the way the early church baptized. We just don't think it is all that big a deal as to the mode of baptism. I have friends that are much more adamant about having the right meaning, although, again, often I think they have the wrong meaning. But they would say the meaning of baptism uh, is far more important than the mode of baptism. And so they would be happy with it being just um, uh, done for the purposes of identifying with the body of Christ or whatever. All right? Uh, I thought maybe God was taking a dim view on what I was saying there. But no, the light is back up. I'm on God's side. Third, who is the church to baptize? Well, the Baptist faith and message clearly answers that the church baptizes only Believers. By the way, I suspect on any given Sunday in this church, as well as many other Baptist churches, there are people who attend who've never joined, 
who attend, love the preaching, love the ministry, love all that we do and have never joined and probably never will, or at least they're hesitant to do so because they were baptized as infants. And for some of them, they are convinced that there is something authentic and genuine about their baptism, even though they had nothing to do with their baptism. It was all done on their behalf by their mom and dad. But then understand, if I then say that what happened back then wasn't legitimate, then who am I calling the question but my mom and my dad? I've heard this argument so many times I've grown weary of it. Because they do not wish to offend their mom and dad, even though they've come to understand clearly that what happened to them as an infant is not biblical baptism. In fact, it was not baptism at all. So, who is the church to baptize? Only believers. As John Hammett, professor of theology at Southeastern, points out, the term faith or the term believer occurs five times in the four sentences of the article in the Baptist Faith and Message on Baptism. And I'm glad that is indeed the case. In the Great Commission, becoming a disciple of Christ precedes the command to baptize. On the day of Pentecost, Peter commanded repentance prior to baptism. Thus, the proper member for baptism is a believer. And therefore, this rules out infant baptism in any form or fashion. Fourth, what is the meaning of baptism? Well, archaeology of the earliest church buildings reveal the meaning, or at least give us insight into the meaning of baptism. Christians constructed baptistries in the shape of crosses or coffins. Baptism, then, is a Christian drama of the gospel message. Through baptism, the church enacts a drama of the gospel, conversion, and the community of faith. Thus, baptism is historical. The ordinance symbolizes the most significant moment in cosmic history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the core proclamation of the gospel. Further, baptism is confessional. As noted by the Baptist faith and message, baptism symbolizes the believer's faith in the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Again, without being ugly, that is something an infant cannot do. By the way, this is for free. Though I believe that a small child can truly, genuinely understand, comprehend... Believe and confess the gospel. I think we need to be very cautious in, one, forcing that upon them. And secondly, we need to be very cautious before we baptize them to make sure they do understand. I'm going to do something interesting tonight. This group, there's no telling what this will be. How many of you that are here tonight have been baptized more than once? Would you raise your hand? Look at Good night. A third moving toward a half, 40%. By the way, every year at the seminary when I have new student orientation, just out of curiosity, I'll say, I'm just curious, just curious. I ask two questions. One, how many of you, either you or your spouse, have come out of a broken home? It's never less than 30%, and usually it's closer to 40 to 50. These are people going into the ministry. One of the, uh, one or other of the, of the members of the family came out of a broken home. That'd be true for me. My wife came out of a broken home. Then I'll ask the question, how many of you have gone under the waters of baptism more than once? It's never less than 30%. It usually, again, approaches close to 40%, which tells you this, by the way. 
Uh, if you were here Sunday, you heard me talk about the fact that we baptized the fewest number of persons we baptized in over 20 years. If you were here, you heard that. We know that at least a third to 40 percent of baptisms that take place in any given year in our Southern Baptist churches are rebaptisms. So the number of people that we're reaching for Christ is much worse than you ever imagined. In fact, we also know this. Over half of all that are baptized are 10 years of age and under. Question, how many adult conversions are we seeing in our Baptist churches across the Southern Baptist Convention? Answer, very, very, very few. But my point is, again, this. We've obviously made a mistake in the past. We, we, we may not be guilty of infant baptism, but we are guilty of too early adolescent baptism. We certainly are. And again, putting my cards on the table, all four of my sons received Christ before they were 10, were baptized before they were 10, but none of them ever doubted that they were converted before they were 10. And the fact is, with all of them, I waited and I waited. In fact, with my twins, who were probably converted about the age of six, I did not baptize them for three years because I wanted to make sure that they truly, genuinely did comprehend the gospel. And so we should not be trying to manipulate or rush or pressure our children into making a decision that is premature and that they are not yet ready to make in terms of committing themselves fully to Jesus Christ as Savior. So, again, we believe it symbolizes the believer's faith in the gospel of death, burial, and resurrection. Last sentence of page 4, baptism is doctrinal. Baptism highlights two specific doctrines, the doctrine of the Trinity and also the doctrine of conversion. Top of page 5, the church baptized and continues to baptize in the name of the loving Father, redeeming Son, and sealing Spirit. Moreover, baptism is testimonial. Baptism dramatically portrays the conversion of the believer. It depicts the union of the believer with the crucified and resurrected Lord. The New Testament then expresses this union with Christ by means of the language we have been baptized into Christ. Through union with Christ by faith, a believer dies to sin, buries his old life, and comes up out of the water symbolizing that he is now walking in a resurrected new life. Finally, baptism is prophetic. Through baptism, a believer affirms the final resurrection of the dead. I believe that someday I'm coming up out of that grave in a brand new glorified body. And in some sense, my baptism not only looks to the past, but my baptism also looks to the future as well. Fifth, what is the context of baptism? Like the Lord's Supper, baptism is communal. By participating in baptism, a believer identifies with Christ and identifies with the people belonging to Christ, that is, the church. As a visible symbol of the community of faith, biblical baptism does not occur in the context of a family meeting, a home fellowship, or a Bible study group. Baptism depicts the unity of the church as well as the union of the believer with the body of Christ. Thus, in baptism, the believer undergoes an oath of allegiance to the risen Lord and an oath of allegiance to the body, the covenantal community. 
Thus, the community of faith pledges to shepherd the new believer into discipleship. Baptism, therefore, is a community celebration and uh, commitment. In other words, if you were to come to me and say, uh, Brother Danny, I just received Jesus as my Savior. Would you come over to my uh, house in, or my parents' house or my friend's house and take me into the backyard where they have a big swimming pool and baptize me? No, I will not. I will not. Because I believe that baptism, with only the rare exception of making its way into new territory on the mission field, is to be done under the authority and watch care of a local church. And therefore, I would not baptize you one-on-one somewhere disconnected with the local assembly of believers that you are going to join yourself to. Only with the except, because what you'll thought, you say, well, who, who was the Ethiopian eunuch? What church was he baptized into? He was taking the gospel basically as a missionary back to Ethiopia. Same thing with the uh, Philippian jailer, although there you've got a church in the process of being formed in Philippi. So apart from the going of the gospel, the spreading of the gospel, the expanding of the gospel into missionary territory, I believe that baptism is to take place within the authority and under the watch care of the local church because you are identifying yourself with Christ. To identify yourself with Christ is also to identify yourself with his body, which, of course, is The church of the Lord Jesus. Next paragraph then. You might want to put a star by this because I find it fascinating. In our recent revision of Baptist faith and message, not one word pertaining to the ordinance of baptism was altered. We have indeed enjoyed a high level of agreement for decades and for several reasons, with the exception that I noted a moment ago about right administrator. And that really wasn't an issue until the last five years for some reason. We are in strong agreement regarding the importance of baptism. The most substantive source regarding the significance of baptism comes from Jesus himself. Great Commission, Matthew 28, 20. Next paragraph. Southern Baptist scholars then have strongly held that baptism is a public expression of an inward reality of having been unified with Christ. That's a great statement. A public expression of an inward reality of having been unified with Christ. His death represents our death to self, and his resurrection, top of page 6, represents our having been raised new creatures who are no longer under the curse and enslavement of sin. That's Colossians 2.12. In other words, we have viewed baptism as an act of obedience, which is why we call it an ordinance, and as a symbolic act, which is why we reject the term sacrament. The Southern Baptist understanding of baptism stands in conflict with the official doctrine of traditional Roman Catholicism and even Protestant groups who teach that in the act of baptism there is the impartation of grace without pre-existing faith. In other words, if you are a Lutheran and you say, well, where's the faith? Because they will say that faith must accompany baptism. They will usually say it's a vicarious faith on behalf of the child provided by their parents. Some will say that there is an incipient or implied faith on the part of an infant who's not capable of any such action as that, but that's how they get around and distance themselves from Catholicism, which says you are born again at your baptism. Thus, this belief that grace is imparted to the subject of baptism is why it is called a sacrament, and it is why we have rejected it as an acceptable term. 
As Southern Baptists, then we have historically rejected any notion of sacramental grace in baptism. As this idea runs counter to the clear teaching of salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And of course, our poster child here, if you like, is the thief on the cross who did not get into any water, and yet Jesus said to him in light of his repentance today, today, right now, at the end of this day, you will be with me in paradise. Thus, the idea of faith or belief presupposes sufficient cognitive ability and maturation so as to reject any possibility of infants being appropriate candidates for baptism. This has been historically true of all Baptists, and for our Anabaptist forefathers, it was also a, a, an act that cost many of them their lives. In other words, baptism, though it does not save, is a really big deal to me. First of all, because of the New Testament. Secondly, because we have some wonderful forefathers who lost their lives over their commitment to believers' baptism. For instance, the Slytheim Confession, the earliest Anabaptist Confession of 1527 states, and I quote, Baptism shall be given to all those who have learned repentance and amendment of life, and who believe truly that their sins are taken away by Christ, and to all those who walk in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and wish to be buried with Him in death, so that they may be resurrected with Him. And to the, all those who with this significant request baptism of us and demand it for themselves, well, if you have to request it and you have to demand it, I want you to baptize me. Next statement nails it, does it? This excludes infant baptism because they can't very well ask for something they have absolutely no ability to understand. In support of this position... One only has to look at various baptism narratives in the book of Acts, where the context clearly demonstrates that believers were baptized following a response of faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to conclude, top of page 7, that baptism, that baptism does not save is clear. That baptism is not optional is equally clear. A non-baptized Christian is an oxymoron. It's nonsensical. If I, by hook or crook, could bring Paul back from the dead, have him stand up here with me tonight. We First of all, have a much bigger crowd than we have. But anyway, have Paul standing right here by me, and I will point to somebody and say, Paul, there is a non-baptized Christian. Paul would look at me and say, I, I don't understand. What are you talking about? A non Baptized Christian. The New Testament knows no such thing. Hence my statement, it knows of no such creature. And therefore, the same should be true for Christians and the church today. Just to close, if you're here tonight and you profess Christ as Savior, but you have never been baptized, there's one of two reasons. Either one, ignorance, and I have taken care of that tonight, or two, disobedience. Ignorance or disobedience. The fact of the matter is, if you have been converted, baptism always follows conversion. It always follows conversion. So anything prior to your conversion was just you getting either a little wet from sprinkling or pouring or a lot wet by going under some water, but you were not baptized. 
because you were not saved, and therefore you could not be properly identified with Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. So you say to me, well, then what should I do? You should, this coming Sunday, walk down this aisle, present yourself to this church, tell them I have trusted Christ as my Savior, but I was not aware of it, or God has dealt with my heart, and now I'm here to publicly identify myself with Christ by believer's baptism, by immersion. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.